0: You're listening to The Anxious Poet, a podcast by Adrian G.R. Scott. I'm a poet who suffers from anxiety, an anxious poet, and for the sake of this podcast I am the anxious poet, and here is an anxious poem. The Tremor of Silk I wake to sleep and take my waking slow I learn by going where I have to go, Theodore Rothke. I can glean a seed of comfort from the breath-panting, running, huffing happiness that Gabriel, my dog, finds in our long walk. It sets up a yearning that is painful to my stomach-sinking, down-bringing, drear morning, waking, aching for more sleep. I never dreamed that I would be called anxious, depressed, an object of sympathetic card-sending, sad, condoling nods. I have never longed more, or implored, or burned for relief, rescue, to gain a vantage point that sees ahead, an end to all this. We are walking round the dam, all three dogs are in full stream, whereas I flood, sporadically, with down-the-neck, hot-water panic. Will it end, or am I stuck in this wet-path, leaf-dropped winter that issues into no spring, as the raven-dark moor won't release me? I suppose dogs must get depressed, but Gabriel seems the steadiest of friends, as he wanders ahead, licking the water, unfazed by my state. His unperturbed gaze is that seed... Not relief, but the tremor of silk. It grows in his dark eyes and enters my belly silently. That's what I cling to. His smoothing generosity in the pain of my dislocation from the life I thought unshakable. His head on my knee, not hope, no, but it is love. My name's Adrian, Adrian Scott. I live in Sheffield in the Rivlin Valley with my wife Wilma and my three dogs, two border collies, Gabriel and Arthur, alongside a tyrannical Jack Russell called Lily. About four years ago, I had my first big mental health episode. I think what people colloquially refer to as a breakdown So here's my narrative poem that will give you an idea of what happened. Anxiety Diary We keep a journal to entrap that collection of selves that forms us, the individual human being. William Boyd, Any Human Heart June 2014 Three or four losses of consciousness at home After smoking a small amount of cannabis, first I'd had in years, what possessed me to do this? Some unconscious overconfidence? I thought I was dying, said goodbye to my wife, wept myself in the conservatory. A paramedic attended, an ECG showed nothing abnormal, it's called a whitey. August 2014 Feeling of faintness in the street, going for breakfast in North Berwick whilst on holiday. Absolute panic. An ambulance took me to A&E at Edinburgh Hospital for a few hours. ECG, blood pressure, blood sugar, inconclusive, but nothing serious. Riveting panic attack at the Edinburgh Festival. Watching Private Peaceful. Utter dread, palpitations, dizziness, coming in waves, crashing around my ears. I gripped the seat and made it to the end. Went back to the holiday flat and worried. Visited the GP in Gullen, holiday patient. He didn't think I was dying, just anxious. Gave me diazepam. The Scottish chemists don't have prescription charges. Result. September 2014. My own GP, when I came back to Sheffield, diagnosed anxiety and panic as the attacks kept ganging up on me. More diazepam, citalopram, an SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Takes time to work. Side effects include increased anxiety and even suicidal ideation. They also gave me amitriptyline for sleep. I started Jungian therapy, scared myself into it, and then got really scared of my dreams, my thoughts, the feeling of not being here, the feeling that I was detached from myself, waking up, going to sleep, and a whole world of phantoms and demons in between. October 2014, a week alone, well, just me and my lad. Then he went on his school trip, isolation. When my wife and girls came back from Spain, I fainted in bed, lying down at 7am. What the hell is happening to me? It must be bad, worse than I thought, and that was cruel enough, good God. I decided not to take the medication, just the odd diazepam, like paracetamol for panic. But the trip to A&E at the Northern General on a Sunday made me feel like a malingerer, and the exasperated registrar told me, just take the tablets, give them time to work. OK, I thought, it can't be worse than this. It was, though. Constant visits to the overworked GP. I was sure that there was more to this dread than anxiety. He tested my blood for adrenal cancer and other conditions. That did not relax me either. Though he exchanged Zopiclone for amitriptyline, Made me sleep like the dead for six hours. Curtailed my dreams. Not good for the Jungian therapy. It is addictive. Be careful, the doctor cautioned. November 2014. I would wake with a hammering heart and no memory of falling asleep. As the day went on, I would feel increasingly easier and by bedtime a semblance of normal Cognitive behavioural therapy in six sessions punctuated by tick box monitoring forms delivered by a CBT coach, not a therapist, he stresses. A kind of first aid for the anxious of mind. Watching the apprentice, you've been fired, late on a Wednesday night, heart rate up, then further up, and hammering in both temples like a demented blacksmith on piecework, Another 999 and another ambulance. Northern General all night. More diazepam. The medical decision unit, more tests. And then the GP again. Beta blockers this time. January 2015. Endocrine consultant, Mr. Alibardia from Scotland. Thinks I have hyperparathyroidism. Too much calcium in the blood attaching to the neurons. One of its symptoms, sudden onset anxiety, as well as exhaustion, aches and kidney stones. The cure, removal of the offending throaty gland. May 2015, Jungian sessions, sometimes twice a week. Self-help books, Charles Linden, recommended by my hairdresser, Matt Haig, public reading, his reasons to stay alive in the York Waterstones, clinging to my seat, hoping that I wouldn't have a panic attack among the shelves. I finally admit, like a first stepper coming out, that this is all just anxiety, though that's a big just. June 2015. I slowly weaned myself off all the tablets, and my symptoms stayed just the same. September 2015, had a cyst removed from my head under a local anaesthetic, and fainted again, halfway through the procedure. February 2016, my throat was scanned three times, twice after an injection of a radioactive isotope, then lying stock still under a flatbed scanner for an hour and a half, claustrophobic. The third, an ultrasound, gel on the neck reminding me of all the anxiety when my middle daughter was born premature. Finally, the surgery, the cutting of my throat, dropped off at the Hallamshire Hospital, early morning tests, surgical stockings, feeling old and on my own, a sterile tunnel into the general anaesthetic and beyond. They took out two glands, two left, to keep my calcium levels in equilibrium. The panic, somewhat lignocaine-induced, was rife for the days of recuperation. July 2016. The door my endocrine system opened in my psyche had previously been only ajar. Now it was thrown open wide and unshuttable. The anxiety I carried, and often ignored, burying it in my cells and shadows, had rushed out into my wide-awake, insomnia-ridden, everyday life. It was still more than a jar, with the potential for sudden onsets. I fainted again in the early sunshine of a contemplative sit at a spiritual event. But I carried on, and was able to function as a leader. Finally, welcoming the anxiety as an awkward, discomforting friend. Postscript. My Jungian therapist said, right at the start, that this breakdown was the best thing that had ever happened to me. I thought it was she that was insane and I wanted to stop right there and then. I think now she may have been right I can agree with that last stanza on a good day. However, on days like the last few, not so much. It always seems to get rough, my anxiety, in around September and October. I think it might be the darkening of the nights and the yellowing and falling of the leaves. I have produced, however, a collection of poems from this experience. Uh, It's called A Night Sea Journey Shameless plug. You can buy it at www.adriangrscott.com or on Amazon. This metaphor, the night sea journey, coined by the psychologist Carl Jung, helped me to begin to make sense of what the hell was happening to me. And that it might not be a tragedy, rather a Transition. During my long traverse of the dark ocean of anxiety, OCD, depersonalisation, derealisation, pharmaceutical side effects, I read some really helpful books, some of which I quote alongside the poems. One writer that I heard at a seminar organised by the Sheffield Guild of Pastoral Psychology, a guy called Andreas Schweitzer, was speaking of a book he had just written called the Sun God's Journey Through the Netherworld. Citing title. It was an exploration of the mythology of ancient Egypt in relation to the way that myths narrate the territory of the psyche and illuminate the symbols of the inner world. He says this at one point, and I quote it in the book. If we are sometimes filled with and beset by profound existential angst, or afflicted with the torment of depression, such an experience can intimate that even now, beneath the threshold of consciousness, the germ of a psychic content is struggling to emerge from the collective unconscious to cause a decisive change in our lives. There is no reason, he says, to be ashamed of such anxiety or depression. Quite the contrary. Someone who never knows such anxiety is most likely cut off from the deeper levels of his or her soul. It is only natural to fear the darker aspects of the self. Wow. It is only natural to fear the darker aspects of the self. And we all have them. I found that quote incredibly helpful. I wasn't just a basket case. There was something going on. Something that I could pay attention to. I was having a debate with a companion poet in my local cafe and she was speculating as to whether being anxious makes one turn to poetry or does being a poet cause you to be anxious. I don't know the answer but I do find the words of Andreas really comforting. I had no choice, at least that's how it felt, but to confront the darker aspects of myself. But the idea that something is trying to emerge that isn't like the alien that erupts out of poor old John Hurt's belly, which it sometimes feels like, but from the collective unconscious, from our human inheritance, that great collective store, we genetically are bequeathed, and it can cause a new and decisive change in our lives. Wow. Well, breakdown certainly causes to change. I stopped doing about everything I was doing, partly because I became agoraphobic. It comes from the Greek word fear of the agora, the public space where people assembled. When the anxiety is bad, I definitely fear places where people assemble. Restaurants, cinemas, theatres, at my worst, even the local co-op. This is quite the behaviour modifier. I had some CBT sessions, cognitive behavioural therapy, from the GP. And the coach tried a type of aversion therapy with me. Start going out. The more you do it, the easier it'll become. Not for me. Once I've had a panic attack in a place, that type of place becomes fearful. This was tough, as I've always loved eating out, watching films, and seeing plays. My daughter's an actor, for God's sake. (sighs) So, the first Christmas of 2014, she'd just come home, my eldest daughter, from uni or drama school, probably, and so had her sister. My son was living at home at the time, and they'd all decided to go and see Paddington, the film. I mithered all day and then just could not face it. They all went off. My eldest, who hadn't realised how rough I was, was utterly bemused. I felt wretched, a failure, trapped. Paddington Bear, what the hell? I laid on the bed with little Lily the Jack Russell who'd been in the wars that day with the bigger dogs and was feeling a bit miserable. And I suddenly remembered that in my desperation I'd ordered a DVD and a book by a guy called Charles Linden on the recommendation of my hairdresser. I thought it was some American hard sell, some snake oil merchant, but I would have tried anything at that moment. Turns out it was from the West Midlands and had cured himself of anxiety and promised a surefire method for doing the same. I watched the DVD and admitted for the first time, I think, that this was all just anxiety, as I say in the poem. That's a big just, though. In his book, he had the most comprehensive list of symptoms I've ever seen. Perhaps I wasn't terminally ill or about to have a heart attack. His method is really a distillation of his and many other people's experience. Why do they always, though, have to turn it into a commodity? You can't read the book without buying the programme. And he has steps, of course, he has steps. They always have steps. They're not bad, though. They're not bad. Um, they're not really steps. He calls them pillars. And I, I, th- Some of them are worth mentioning. The first one, stop visiting every practitioner you can find. Well, that might not be everyone, but certainly I, I, I was looking all the time for someone who could take it away. Um, and the second one is really interesting. Talk to your doctor about withdrawing your medication. Now then, I'm, I'm a person whom medication didn't help. Um, because of the way my anxiety worked I just got more and more anxious about whether these were side effects of the medication or whether it was my condition. For some people medication seems to work but I think where he's onto something is at the end of the day you have to find a way through this okay maybe with the crutch of medication but at the end of the day you're going to have to come off it at some point. And that's something, in my experience, that's not easy to do. And the more you take it, the more difficult it becomes to come off it. Um, The other thing I would say is, and he talks about it in the book, diazepam, it works for about three hours. It's powerful stuff. But it has a half-life. In other words, it's in your system and, and not active but present for 40 hours. Just think about that, 40 hours. So if I have a panic attack now, and I take some diazepam, it'll calm me down for three hours, but it'll be in my system for the next 37. So if I have a panic attack tomorrow evening, that first dose is still in my system. So if I take another one, I've got even more in my system, which is why it's so damn addictive. And, and why they're very nervous about giving too much of it. Plus the fact people sell it as uh, on the streets because it's, it's seen as a great karma uh, downer. So I think, you know, diazepam, my, my therapist was very keen that this is like paracetamol. If you really, really can't cope, it, it, it will take it away for a little while, but we have to find other ways through this and Charles's stuff is pretty good on the way through in some ways. The other thing is I was on citalopram and then sertraline. Both of them are what they call SSRIs which I don't think they're really anti-anxiolytic. They're antidepressants and some of the side effects are pretty rough. And the other thing to say, my therapist, God bless her, also worked in GP surgeries at one time, helping people come off antidepressants. And one of the things that she highly recommended as I did it was to do it slowly, very slowly. Break the tablets into quarters. If you're on 100 mils or 150 mils, come down to 125 for a month or six weeks and then 100 and then 75. Do it really slowly. And the other thing to say is, that the side effects seem to mimic the reason you started taking it. So if you you start to feel anxious or a lot of the symptoms, likely, probably, it's withdrawal. Trouble is, you think, oh my God, it's come back, I better, st- oh, I better stay on them. So slow withdrawal and don't worry too much about the effect of the withdrawal, let it, ride it out for a couple of weeks and it usually goes away so medication uh, is horses for courses but for me it, it didn't really work and there was a lot of other work that was worth doing and some of them were in his steps so stop researching your condition once you've realized you've got anxiety or depression knowing huge amounts about it won't make it any different um and and it can just heighten it i think that's what he's getting at um stop talking about your condition um i think what he means by that or what i would mean by that is don't define yourself don't i know i've called myself the anxious poet but i don't define my life by being an anxious person i don't that's not the first thing i tell people one of the hard things about depression and anxiety i think is it doesn't show so sometimes you have to say to people, actually, I'm really an anxious person. But most of the time, I wouldn't lead with that. Um, and, and I wouldn't recommend uh, defining your life by anxiety, because then that starts to close your life down. And I think that's what he's getting at. Don't hold on to memories of your condition. This is a really good one. For me, if I've had a panic attack somewhere, that place becomes tarnished and dangerous to me. And his point is, it's just geography. Just imagine that you're not there, you're somewhere else. You're sitting at home. And you wouldn't have one there, so why why would you necessarily have one where you are now? It's just geography. So it's very easy. Anx- anxious people are very imaginative, and it's very easy to... Hold on to memories and and just amplify the condition rather than beginning to let go of those memories and change your memories to something else. A bit CBT-like. Divert your mind. Make it your new habit always. Uh, yeah, I'll say a lot more about that on other podcasts. Stop accommodating your anxiety. Pillar 9. That's another one about not defining yourself by it. And, and thinking oh I, I can't sign up for that holiday in three months time because I might be anxious well and you might not and you might be anxious and still really enjoy it the other thing to say about Charles's book is is just how great the list of symptoms is it's called the chapter's called the anatomy of anxiety and really helped me funny things like My anxiety creates really bad pins and needles in in between my shoulder blades. And I thought that must have been something terrible wrong with me. Actually, it's just your nerve endings being a bit funny because you're anxious. It's, It's completely meaningless. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong. And reading someone talking about those symptoms and reassuring you is so helpful. Even really difficult stuff like depersonalization is that feeling where you feel like you're watching yourself doing things and from my thoughts I think it's what the psyche does it reality is really difficult so it starts to separate itself a little bit but it gives you a very weird feeling and again it's just anxiety and it does go and you know you might have it for five minutes and then it goes away or you you might have it all day but the next day it'll be gone these lists are great. And I, I'm pretty certain, having said stop uh, researching your condition, I think you can stop once you have identified this is really my condition. So one thing, if if someone is worried about anxiety, is is, you know, I'm sure the internet is full of lists of symptoms like that. My experience was the doctors aren't so conversant with that list. And if you start saying... You know, I've got this or that. Sometimes they look at you like, oh, gosh. I think it would be great if a few more of them understood the real anatomy of anxiety a bit more. Um, I know they're dealing with hundreds of different of different conditions, but anxiety is pretty ubiquitous at the moment. So, I don't know whether there is more anxiety about or whether people are more willing to talk about it probably a bit of both. Just this month I've watched a powerful BBC Panorama programme about the paucity of mental health care for teenagers, many of whom are suffering from anxiety. It's very upsetting watching a a 13 year old with OCD worrying that he's going to hurt his dad all the time, but very powerful and he comes through it. There was also a great article in the Stylist magazine, not something I read very often, about Nadia Hussein. Uh, she's the recent winner of Bake Off a couple of series ago. She's often on the telly at the moment. She does great cookery programmes. She says that she never goes more than two months without a significant panic attack. Good grief. And she, she has a great life, but it's always there in the background. And she talks about learning how to live with it and how to befriend it. And then just recently, Claire Foy, who played the queen in The Crown, she's revealed her struggles with anxiety. She says this in a Guardian article. When you have anxiety, you have anxiety about, I don't know, anything, crossing the road, she says. The thing about it is, it's not related to anything that would seem logical. It's purely about that feeling in the pit of your stomach and the feeling that you can't because you're this or you're that. It's my mind working at a thousand beats a second and running away with a thought. Wow. My mind working at a thousand beats per second and running away with a thought. That is such an accurate description. I think it's brilliant that people talk about it, that Claire Foy talks about seeing a therapist and about getting help. Thank God. This is a journey, a night-sea journey, that many of us go on. And there are really dark nights, but there's also really, really great harbours and relief. For me, becoming symptomatic is like a storm, and I have to trust the little boat of my psyche will ride it out, and when it's over, I'll find myself on a good course. And there are things that I can do to weather the storm. Walking, I love walking. And the more I do it, the better I feel. I walk with my dogs, rain or shine, and it always provides some respite. Um, And over time, it is a great cure. Writing. For me, writing is a real uh, way of diverting my mind, so I don't think about the anxiety. I think about what I'm writing, even if I'm writing about anxiety. Um, it it's great. Chamomile tea. It's very calming. I hated the smell of it when I first started to drink it. It was a kind. Of, I thought it was a kind of poncy drink, but. Actually, a bit of chamomile tea with honey, it's fantastic. Massage, started having really good massage therapy. Um, again, it's, you know, it's not necessarily cheap, but it really helps because it's the body that it's addressing. Tai Chi, another one, allows the body to calm and sink and, and uh, you're more present to your body because at first I thought it was my body that had let me down. I couldn't trust it. My anxiety is really physical, pins and needles, like I said, between the shoulder blades, racing heart. Just that overwhelming feeling of dread in the pit of your stomach, like someone poured a bucket of ice into your gut. And then the mind takes over, as Claire Foy says, at a thousand beats per second. and and just is searching for the cause of all these physical feelings. So I thought it was my body, but actually it was my body that was utterly truthful. In order to do the work that I have done, facilitation and leading events and, and, and holding teams together, I always felt I had to be calm and give off the aura of wisdom and control all the people I looked up to were these people that could calm everybody down and seem to know what they were doing. And okay, no matter what's happened, we can deal with this. Um, and when my second daughter was so ill, when she nearly died, when 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 she was little, and spent the first six months of her life in hospital, and my son was diagnosed with type one diabetes when he was sixteen and it sent him down and down. I always carried myself in a kind of focused steadiness. I thought it was my job to be Mr Calm and to absorb, and that's the word, absorb all of the tension. However, it was my body that was paying the price. I was storing all that tension and trauma in my cells, and one day, my body just made it clear that it was full up and we needed to have a long and bloody difficult conversation. And that conversation lasted a few months. Because I didn't realise that my body wasn't lying, I tried the pharmaceutical route, and I'll talk more about that in another podcast. It didn't really work for me. What did and does work is what I want to chat about for the rest of this episode. The things that work don't work quickly. That's part of the difficulty uh, I think that our health service is is struggling with. They want to give you a tablet that will quickly take away the symptoms. Whereas the real cures are slow, incremental, steady, continuous, focused things. I also found some real good compañeros in my life that walked with me through the storms i think we all have people we look up to the two for me one is vincent van gogh the artist the other is saint francis of assisi and i've got a whole cycle of poems in the book about both of those people so here's one about vincent van gogh he uh he has a, 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 a an episode, let's say, a breakdown, self-harms cuts off part of his ear, and ends up being sent to this place called San Reme, an asylum in Provence, San Reme de Provence. And all through this he writes to his brother Theo. And so in the poems about him I have lots of quotes from these fantastic letters that he wrote. This poem's called Trying to Recover. During the attacks, I feel cowardly in the face of pain and suffering, more cowardly than is justified, and perhaps it's this moral cowardice itself, which previously I had no desire to cure, that now makes me eat for two, work hard, and limit my relations with the other patients for fear of falling ill again. In short, I am trying to recover, like someone who has meant to commit suicide, but then makes for the bank, because he finds the water too cold. Vincent to his brother Theo, from the asylum at San Remy, 7th to 8th of September, 1889. The sea-green curtains are drawn in his room. The iron-framed bed cradles his restless sleep. This was once, before the revolution, a monastery, The desk is arrayed with a half-written letter, the pen dropped mid-sentence. As his gaze was seized by the view, he finally let go of to rest. His hands stained with night-time Prussian blue as they clutch at the covers, wrapping himself in the uncertain realms of anxious slumbering. He thought, her sleep took him, if only I could bottle this calmness that I see in the early rising morning star and take a draught when I wake up. But now he stirs, and the bedeviling fear is up and about. His eyelids are tingling with the pins and needles of unrested wakefulness. He pulls the curtains, the lines of thin red blood in the pattern matching his eyes. Beholding the southern sun, he tried to propitiate with painting. He eats lentils and eggs for breakfast on his own, and makes for the room they have given him as a studio, overlooking the monastery gardens. He swirls the night sky with the hard white yellow of that morning star, and the calm returns, flowing in and out of the San Reme streets and steeple. He works all day, braving the solitude and befriending the splash of darkness that haunted his sun-baked days the black-green flames of the Provencal cypress trees. When he works, he is not prey to any of the anxiety that he felt in the outside world of the yellow house and the obdurate dreams of his studio in the south. He watches the stone bench in the garden change its hues and saturation as the year of another day takes its course to twilight. And he sketches it again. In his room at night, he finishes the letter to his brother. He ends with a loving handshake in thought and goes back to the window where the night is starry again. I was lucky enough this summer to go to Saint-Rémy-de-Provence with my wife. We made a kind of personal pilgrimage to the site of Vincent's sojourn in the asylum at Saint-Rémy and then on to Assisi in Italy where Saint Francis lived. As the poem tells, The asylum he was admitted to after a short stay in a general hospital in Arles was originally a monastery dedicated to the Apostle St Paul. His act of gross self-harm, slicing off part of his own ear and presenting it to a local prostitute, was the final act of a developing psychological drama that seemed to begin when his friend and fellow artist Paul Gauguin arrived. Vincent had great ambitions to set up a studio in the South and painted his famous sunflowers in homage to the Provençal son and to welcome his friend. At this time, he also learnt that his brother Theo, to whom he was deeply attached and who supported his every move, emotionally and financially, was engaged to be married. This news, along with his apparently deeply fractious nature, created a vortex that increased in force and as the summer months slipped by, he slipped down. The doctor at the hospital in Arles recommended to Theo that his brother would benefit from a period in an asylum and thankfully, given the options available at the time, they chose the asylum at Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. I think that was an amazing choice because it was less of the straight jacket and padded cell and more of the incremental cures that I've been talking about. What strikes you when you visit is that it hasn't really changed an awful lot. The vistas of the Apollels, the Little Alps, the Olive Groves, the environs of the institution To anyone who has looked at more than a few of Vincent's paintings are very familiar. We walked up the drive and encountered a beautiful bronze statue of the artist clutching a handful, an armful of sunflowers. We also met a group of patients out on a walk because it's still a working mental hospital. Which means that half the building is closed to the public and the other half is a museum dedicated to its most famous resident. The chapel's still really well used and they've got a mock-up of the type of room that Vincent lived in for that year between 1889 and 1890. There are rooms dedicated to displaying the patient's artwork. Art is obviously a part of the therapeutic regime, thank the Lord. The gardens he made famous are still there and the feeling of peace and restitution is really palpable people come and go for their appointments with resident psychotherapists. It's a real, that old word, asylum, which has become really pejorative, but really means a place of safety, and it feels like that. Even in Vincent's time, it was an enlightened institution. As I said, the padded cells and straitjackets were less part of the treatment, and more attention was paid to good food, baths, walking, being accompanied by orderlies, and getting good rest. This was, however, the 19th century, and so it wasn't without its brutalities. You can see the baths where patients were locked in for long periods of time with just their heads showing. But for Vincent, it was most definitely a cure. He improved, as the quote from the letter at the head of the poem attests. He was allowed a second room as a studio, and in fact, his output in this period, was its most prolific. He had subjects galore. Himself, as ever, cheap model self-portrait, the gardens, then as he was allowed to wander further afield, the countryside. And he also made portraits of some of the staff. A real courageous honesty emanates from these paintings and, and it attests to his recovering abilities. The asylum definitely was curative for Vincent and restorative. He was lonely, but it it gave companionship of a kind with the people who looked after him. A real asylum. I recently listened to a Point of View on Radio 4 in which Will Self speaks of a troubled friend of his who ended up being sectioned and then incarcerated in a mental health ward. The drug regime and the lack of joined up thinking in the treatment was utterly shocking. And it really made me wonder, how far have we actually come? When I was ill, I once said to my wife I thought I needed to be hospitalized, thinking it would offer some kind of asylum to my troubled and frayed psyche. Will Self's piece left me deeply grateful that I wasn't admitted. I do realize that, you know, mental health Professionals and staff are doing their best, but they are also telling us that the system is cracking and and that that what is being offered is no way uh, what should be offered. Because I've been prepared to speak of my mental health difficulties, I've met numerous people who suffer from all kinds of garden variety mental health conditions, from anxiety, depression, mild psychosis, all kinds of things. I've also watched tens of hundreds of episodes of 24 Hours in a and or GPs Behind Closed Doors. I'm kind of voyeuristic and fascinated at, at the way the health system works. The remedies offered to many of us by overworked GPs and a and staff are really often pharmaceutical and sometimes accompanied by some short burst of probably CBT, often with a time delay of even months because of waiting lists. When you're in a crisis, the next day it seems a year away. I was fortunate to be able to afford a psychotherapist who was really experienced. When my son had mental health issues after being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, he was recommended a psychiatrist, whose arsenal of treatments were again pharmaceutical and in the end didn't really help him either. The idea of asylum, of a place of safety and an accompaniment being looked after and and sat with and walked with through your illness seems a long way away. To be given really good diagnosis and help with understanding symptoms, to have a kind of accident and emergency triage system for mental health, and then well-qualified talking therapists seems a long way away. Given that it's said that one in four of us will have some mental health episode in our lives, how detrimental to our quality of life as a community is this lack of provision? Even if you just look at the issue from an, envir- an economic point of view, how much time and productivity is lost to the gross domestic product of this country? How much money are we wasting on drugs that mask rather than deal with the causes of many of our modern malaises? My mum ended up in a mental hospital called Middlewood, well known in Sheffield, it's gone now, but um, when I was about 16, 17... She attempted suicide twice, um, and voluntarily went into hospital. I don't think she <laughs> realised it was a mental hospital she was going to, um, and it 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 was a scary place, and I remember visiting her and being really frightened for her because it was an assessment ward. So there were long term patients a long time alongside short term people like my mum. Um, but though it was a creaky system it worked she was really cared for the staff were amazing and she came out and she never looked back it really helped her in all kinds of ways I might talk about this again in another podcast but um, I think that we have to invest so much more profoundly in mental health provision as a country i'm not saying that the staff aren't trying to provide this and they are eloquently testifying to the fact that that they are overstretched and underpaid and underfunded but we really do have to start paying attention to the needs of of people in terms of mental health and come up with a much more comprehensive way of dealing with it Vincent's letters are as much of a work of art as his canvases, and he gives an amazing testimony to the symptoms and things that he suffered and the fears that they raised in him. And I think we would all be so well served by more of this kind of frankness and a much less fearful approach to mental illness. If you look at Vincent's pictures, you realise these are the works of a man who was incredibly creative and incredibly troubled. If, as I said, anxiety and depression were far more like physical illnesses, more observable, we would throw money at them. But they're shamefully hidden at the moment. And... and, and We all have this fear and shame about them. And therefore they go underground and untreated. I think there is a kind of epidemic ubiquity about anxiety and depression at the moment. And it raises some really important questions about the way we live. I read a great article online a little while ago by someone who was anxious saying, actually, isn't this a natural reaction to the world we live in? Just walk through a modern airport or go and try and have a conversation in a, in a busy pub in London. It, it, it's stressful, really stressful. <laughs> travel home on the Tube or travel to work on the Tube or the train. We live in such a stressful world. You know, and that's the more, um, dare I say it, middle-class world. Uh, I volunteer at a food bank every week in a, in a, in a working-class part of Sheffield and, you know, add, add some of the issues that, that being in one of those communities raises um, and you've got something even more stressful. I'm just reading a book called Poverty Safari by a writer called Darren McGarvey and he gives eloquent, eloquent testimony to the stresses and strains that people living in working class communities are under. I highly recommend it. So it's no wonder we're anxious. No wonder we're getting depressed. And we really do need to look at at the way we are setting up our society and the things that we expect of one another. Or we're just gonna be throwing more and more of our citizens under the bus. Um. Unfortunately it's often left to anxious poets, brave comedians, uneasy chefs, distressed actors, angry commentators, ferocious and dedicated journalists and troubled artists to keep these issues in the public consciousness. And God bless them all for doing it and, and I hope... That, that my little bit in this podcast and those to come helps to keep these issues up in people's minds and, and gives comfort and impetus to do something about it. I'll end with another of my Vincent poems. It's about two rooms, it's called Two Rooms. <clears throat> the one he lived in and famously painted in all. If you Google search his bedroom in Arles, beautiful, beautiful, simple painting of his room. And the second one is that he never painted is the one he stayed in at the asylum in Arles. And it's offered as an encouragement to all of us who suffer at times from anxiety and depression to find our own version of painting our way out of things. Even if only, like Vincent, it lasts for a time. It does show that anxiety and depression aren't prisons. They can open out into creativity. Two Rooms I'm sending you a little sketch. This time it's simply my bedroom. Only here everything depends on the colour. Vincent to his brother Theo from the Yellow House in all October 1888. I have a small room with greenish-grey paper and two sea-green curtains with the design of very pale roses brightened with touches of blood red. Vincent to his brother Theo, from the asylum at San Reme, May 1889. When I look at this room, I think of that one. I can so easily enter it again, the orange washstand in the early light, as I rush to scrub the night from my face, to charge out into the glowing dawn and paint the red vineyard as the workers arrive. In this room, here in St Paul's, my monastic asylum, nothing is my choice. Not these curtains, legacy of the mad and ruined or the broken-down obliging armchair, nor are the bars and the bolted grey-green door. In that room, in the yellow house at Arles, I drifted on my dreams, the studio, the artist that would come. It was my inner shrine, a temple to the southern sun, with its powder-blue walls, an endless horizon to the brush strokes of my ambitions. I lay now in a verdigris metal bed on a coral-red, diamond-tiled floor. My dreams dried into delusions, cracking like thick impasto badly applied, and I am left with the ruined easels and the clotted brushes of my life. Between these two rooms a pallid corridor in which I trudged alone, or so I thought, like the prisoners in Dore's engraving I copied, shuffling hopelessly, a grey march of despair, unaware of those ahead or behind, desperate to escape into a better light. I have had to leave the room of dreams, though I revered its vibrancy, and now I am in the room of acceptance, tolerating those grim intruders, desolation and anxiety. Inmates I have slowly befriended. In the uneasy peace of this room, my curtain's pink roses are the colour of scars, with an occasional splash of blood red. But still, they frame a view to paint, a sun Rising in all its glory, spring wheat and a garden to green my palate. Thanks for listening. Hope to speak to you again.